0: What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What does John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the word of faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these. Or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at theologyanswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Welcome to the podcast. This is James Tippins with Edward Delcour, and this is episode seven of Theology Answers. Today we're going to be discussing a very hot topic, and I know I say that often. However, this is one of those things that even causes a lot of relational stress amongst Christendom in households, in ministry, in community, etc. And we're going to talk today on the teaching of election. Remember, doctrine means teaching, and when we say the doctrine of election, we're going to talk about the teaching of election. Now, I find it interesting that many people who refute election actually will tell me, quote, I don't believe that the Bible teaches election. Now, my comment back to them is, what in the world then does the Bible mean when it actually uses the term? And so today we're going to talk about election, and we're going to answer the question, is election based on God's sovereignty or is it based on God's foreknowledge, and what is it that the Bible actually teaches? But I do, I hear this type of conversation constantly, and Brother Edward and I are going to try to tackle this from a contextual point of view and deal with it in a way that everyone can see what the Bible actually says so that we can stick to the facts of exegetical processes rather than the feelings of culture, etc.
1: Yeah, and, and so it- you know, a lot of times these conversations um, uh, and and discourses, uh, sometimes with the opposers, uh, more than not, it always seems to devolve into a philosophical assertion about propositions and what he really means and all these things. And my response to all that is not really. I mean, there are some I think doctrines that you can impl- that we see implications, but on other doctrines like election, there's exegetical confirmation that are not, it's not a mere question of philosophy. It's exegetical confirmation. And I think, um, you know, when we're dealing with the text, we just, as I always say, we got to stay biblical. We got to stay exegetical and simply allow the text to read for itself.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the things we need to keep in mind, too, brother, as we talk about this topic, is that it is a very emotional issue. It's something that people are just not taught, and therefore they don't have a point of reference. Sadly, many people are taught a false gospel from the beginning, and so they hear these details about salvation, i.e. election, and they get very upset rather than having a heart to
1: learn I think it's very difficult, I think, um, uh, emotionally for Christians uh, to stay textual. I've seen even my my Calvinistic brothers, um, they use philosophical arguments in which really do gratify Arminian doctrines. And uh, we just have to practice staying biblical, staying true to the text, staying exegetically confirmatory on these things, because it is a matter of the exegesis of the text and what it's actually saying.
0: Now, one interesting thing to keep in mind as we have this conversation is that we are talking from a biblical point of view and from a Reform perspective, from a Calvinistic perspective, when we talk about election, uh, not because that's the historical model, but really we believe that those traditions best focus and answer the question on election exegetically. And in the time of, of church history where Calvinistic doctrine and the doctrine of election and specifically unconditional election was becoming prominent, there came a group of people known as the Remonstrants or those who were Armenians who developed what was called the Remonstrants, and they actually came to a place to where they coined the idea that election was conditional. So if we think about the difference between conditional election and unconditional election, we have to deal with the reality that the Bible teaches an unconditional election. In other words, election is something that God has done in his decrees, and so there is no condition on which God – uh, looks at man in order for them to be elected, so there 's no respecter of persons in the mind of god he doesn 't look down and, and arbitrarily choose he 's got no selection process, but this is an eternal decree that comes from eternity past it is immutable and eternal eternal so that therefore god 's decree is what binds up all of this in the sense of election. And election's purpose, really at the end of it all, is for the glory of God through the salvation of his elect people. And election is inclusive of that outcome. So in in other words, the doctrine of election teaches the purpose in which God did it, which is for his glory, the salvation of his people, his glorification through the mercy that he has for them. And then also the people themselves this, this idea that he has chosen a people and individual persons therein. We'll speak about corporate election toward the end. But, and, and also, it includes the means through which he accomplishes his decree of election. So election as a teaching encompasses all three or four of these things. And we also need to realize that the, the Lord, the, you know, God, the Godhead are all involved in election. So conditional election versus unconditional election. Unconditional election is that God does it all based on his sovereign decrees. Conditional election would push the idea that God knows something about the free volition of the creature or of humanity, and he looks into the future and sees who will choose or who will accept or who will do what have you. And then he decrees to elect those who freely will choose salvation. Now, the interesting thing is that we don't really see that in any part in any context of the New Testament teaching, though we have some proof texts that people like to use, and we may go through some of them today, election by by definition is that God has sovereignly elected a specific and particular people who know who He knows, He knows intimately, and He names them in Christ before the foundations of the wor- world, so that they may be chosen and saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He brings these particular people to salvation through his electing work. And so that's how I think I would define election in that regard.
1: Right, that's a, that's a good description of, of both. And we would, of course, we would see the scripture as presenting unconditional election where it was, um, God's election of men unto salvation was solely based on his sovereignty, not the foreseen actions of men. <clears throat> um, and I think uh, as we'll go through in subsequent programs, it, it is, it, you know, this whole doctrine, when examining the doctrine of election, I think two fundamental doctrines must be considered considered here. First, total depravity, and regeneration precedes faith. If you don't understand those two things, you'll never, uh, and I, I can't wait to go through these things more in detail, but you, you really won't understand, you don't understand total inability. You're not going to understand any of the doctrines of grace. Don't you find, James, when you're talking to folks who um, either do not understand election, or um, the, the the majority who just flat out reject the election on God's on the basis of God's sovereignty, they bit and piece a theology together. They take a, a verse here and a verse there, and we would say, we I don't
2: I don't have to do that. I can look from Genesis to Revelation. I can allow. The entirety of biblical revelation to speak. I don't have to take a bit or a bit or an unjustified bit or piece there. I feel, do you find that it's right. uh, common a lot?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and if, I, if I know what you're saying there, I think that, you know, I do find that that people, I, I think what you're saying is that people try to say, I, I, I don't believe this or I see that. And, uh, you know, it comes back to what I just mentioned, this idea of fairness. You know, they, they want to take God and put him in a human point of view, and they want to make him be fair in the context of what the Scripture teaches um, – I mean, for what they believe rather than what the Scripture teaches. So that's that's sort of – yes, I agree with that.
2: And that's, and that's the issue, James. Is God obligated to provide salvation to every single person?
0: No, he's not. He's not at all.
2: And, and it's, we know
0: uh, – It's difficult. <laughs>
2: You know, and, and the only reason why you and I say this is it's, it really is based on the data it's provided in Scripture, particularly in Romans 9, verse 9, 18, where the Lord says, I have yes. mercy on whom I desire, whom he desires, Paul says, and he hardens who he desires. And the and the plasma, as Paul used that term, cannot say, why did you see the one who made it? Why did you make me like right. this?
0: That's correct. That is correct. Goodness. Well... When we um, when we look at you know when we look at election in in the sense of scripture, and we we can really say the Bible teaches it. I mean Ephesians chapter one verse four, uh, we see we see election. We see that the cause of election is the decree of God, God's sovereignty in that respect. And there are a lot of there are a lot of places where Jesus, you know, uh, I mean. It, all throughout Scripture, the work of the Son of God. He says, I know whom I have chosen. (laughs) You have not, like you've already mentioned in John 15, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And John 6 is one of those areas where it's very hard for me to worm out of the biblical doctrine of election, because if God saves according to the way Jesus teaches in that high christology and that in that high theology that he teaches to the multitudes of John 6 if god saves in that way then why is it that we have to come back and you know say then what what is it you know what is it then that we must do in that sense why why do we have to argue that god is unjust and I think you just mentioned that. Do we have – does God have to save anybody? And I think that there's there's so much more as we begin to just sort of talk through these things. We really need to understand God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice and that man is guilty before God. So God is not obligated to save anyone. So there there's there's that to deal with. And I think in a couple of weeks when we talk about depravity and inability, that would be something to really – Hone in on. Um, so how do how do we differentiate? Well, I mean, what are some verses that come to mind when we talk about God's foreknowledge that a lot of people take out of context to make it look like God looks at what we do rather than what He's decreed?
2: Well, I think um, at first I would say on, on this issue it, it is a sovereignty issue. Either God is sovereign mm-hmm. or, over man's eternal destiny, or man is. It, right. And it really, I, I always say that all these. Doctrines are governed by Ephesians 1 11. God, interguntas, uh, uh, operates or working all things, the all things, it's articular there, after the counsel of its own will. So he's working all things, and that's his purpose, after the counsel of his own will. And the all things isn't a couple things, it's the all, neuter all things. Um, but in Romans, for instance, the, the and of course we can do a whole show in this, the Ordo Solitus. I like what James Boyce Boyce said. How does God love us? Let me count the ways. Well, we have five, five verbs in the order, in the order of salvation here. We have the foreknowing, which by the way, it is a verb, not a noun. I will say that again. It is a verb, not a noun. It doesn't say he had a foreknowledge. It says the ones who he foreknew, or uh, I think you can make a linguistic case of this, the ones he foreloved. Mm -hmm based on how the old testament uses yada in the word and the cognitive words of knowing. He and we have he predestined us and these whom he predestined he called, these who he called he justified, and these who he justified, he glorified. Five verbs that are inextricably linked together. You cannot say some who are called are justified and some who are justified are right. glorified. And it starts out right. with not not predestination. It starts out with God foreknowing. And all right. those whom he foreknew, he predestined. So you can't, you, you just can't flip in uh, a word like some of those he predestined, he called, because it breaks the chain. Right. I think that's a, that's right. uh, even without going into all the nuts and bolts, exegetically, these five verbs, and the, the last verb, those whom he glorified, which you know is a, a it's a future reference, but it's put in a, a prolific sense in that mm-hmm. he's so sure of the events. You know, prolific yeah. areas, there he's so sure, sure of it that everyone who he foreknew will be glorified. You can't get a right. a foreknowledge, look into the future kind of view here that that's a possibility. You can break it. You just can't. Not in Romans uh, 8, 29,
0: yeah, 30. Not at all. It's it's interesting too, as I think about election from the context of Scripture. You know, the the totality of the of of the Scripture shows the fullness of the Godhead at work in election. And so when we when we see the Son is choosing, the Son cho- chooses, we don't choose, we see the Spirit, who is the one who are sanctified and are justified by the Spirit. First Corinthians chapter six. We know that the God the God the Father foreknew. He he loved, he he sealed uh, before the before the foundations of the earth. And so we see this thing. I mean, we even see John writing in Revelation 20, the book of life, the decree of God is seen in the book, in the imagery. Now, we know that God doesn't have a book with our name written in it, and he's going to erase it or blot it out. I mean, these are pictures. That's what the whole idea of revelation means. It's pictures that are revealing things. But this picture of the book of life shows that God has, before the foundations of the world, chosen a people. Now, I get a lot of feedback and pushback. Uh, even in some counsel, not people who don't believe it, but people who don't know how to deal with it. What they'll say: What? What do I do? What if I'm not elect? What if isn't that fatalism? Uh, um, you know, I don't know how to handle the 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 idea that God elects and the fear that I may not be the elect. I've even had people say, Well, there's no reason to pray or there's no reason to preach because they become very fatalistic and it 's because I believe, and we can talk about these in different in future podcasts, but I think that, that it 's because they 've not been taught the full counsel of scripture that most people have what I like to call the vitamin boxed biblical worldview when they have all these real clean and established verses that on which they 've built entire theologies around rather than the totality of the context of the writing of these particular books of the Bible. And instead of seeing it holistically, they see it very myopically and very eisegetically in the sense that they don't understand what it means. And we could even talk about those later, you know, how people say, well, God desires every person to be saved. Uh, You know, we've talked about those in some previous podcasts as well. but. You know, when it comes to election, that's a lot of times it's not just people who say they disagree with it and don't believe it. But even the ones who do believe it say, well, now what? We don't need to evangelize. We don't need to we don't need to do uh, this. We don't need to pray. We don't need to preach. There's no sense. God's just going to bring his people in. And there, that's there's an error in that. And I don't know if we want to handle that today or if we want to talk about that in a future podcast. But it's it's important as well.
2: Well, if someone were to ask me 25 years ago, well, yeah, maybe 25 years ago, how do I know if he's am elect? I would probably tell him, well, you better make sure you, you become elect. <laughs> you better make. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah, and it does, you know, it, it, most the Calvinists traditionally um, appeal to the exegesis of the text. Arminians traditionally Correct. appeal to, well, what if you were in the, ocean, and God wanted you to, you know, all these philosophical arguments, and it's just amazing um, demonstrating the weakness of the position, because there's no exegesis involved. And unfortunately, I've seen Calvinists do this, make the same error, because they'll get so upset at the Arminian that they just lack any kind of exegetical interaction. Instead, they'll just slam ad hominem attacks and give, you know, talk about Lazarus and all these things, instead of really dealing... With textual interaction, you mentioned a very good verse. You meant, well, you mentioned a few of them. Why don't we talk about some of these verses that teach election in such a crystal clear fashion, uh, right. like Ephesians in, in context? Because you never want to go outside of context, and you know this: words are are uh, judged or have meaning in light of the context, not just hanging alone. But right, the context rules. I always say context rules when looking at word meaning. Absolutely. You mentioned Ephesians one, and, um, and before I ask you to elaborate a little, um, we know which. What I think is another interesting point about Ephesians one is that all the verbs, uh, choosing, predestining, and so on and so forth, loving, all the verbs um, have God as the subject and man as the object. That's very important yes. to understand. God is always the subject of the choosing. Man is the one receiving the action of the choosing or election, but Ephesians one four and five, Paul starts off, and again there's some refutation here of the Judaizers, as Robinson and others point out. Same with Romans and Galatians, um, right. and he he after he systematically deals with the election, then he goes to the state of man before they were regenerate, they're dead, you know, yes. and how were said. But in Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, um, is this not a crystal clear presentation of the biblical doctrine of election?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's something that we spend a lot of time. When I planted um, Grace Truth Church and we had our core families that, that that began to attend, I began to teach. As a matter of fact, the very first day we had an informational meeting that was just word of mouth, and we had 30-plus people show up. And at the end of that meeting, which was about an hour, I said, okay, guys, we'll just, we'll be in touch. Now, you know, what do, what do you guys want to do now? And one of the men who's now an elder in the church said, well, just teach us something out of the Bible then. Let's go. You know, we're the church. Let's go. So I started in Ephesians 1, and I spent a little over a year teaching through Ephesians. And it is the foundation of understanding the solidity of of the gospel and most importantly it's the it's one of the one of the most important areas of scripture where the church where the believer understands who the church is and understands who God is and understands the work that God did to save his people and that it cannot be overcome. Like John 1 would say, the darkness will not overcome it. This explains why. Because God, before the foundation of the world, has chosen us and predestined us in love for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so some people would say, well, why in the world would God elect? That's why. God elects so that the purpose of so that his glory is seen. Election is for the sake of God's glory. Romans nine twenty-three says the same thing. That he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy which he had before prepared for glory. <laughs> I mean True. that isn't that what that says in Romans nine there. So it's yes, it's a yes. clear picture. Pastorally, this is one of the most important passages of scripture for the local church. These mm. Ephesians one to me, <laughs> in like my the, opinion. The, and particularly the first
2: the first clause of verse four, just as he and here we have again ek lego. It's the areas indicative um, of yes. the verb ek lego. He elected us. When did he elect us? And I'm reading the Greek text right in front of me. Pra katabales, kosmo. Before, pra, before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So that's telling us that the choice of election was made from eternity. His choice was made for eternity. And then some translations, now this is where I think um, some translations are better, because we know there was no punctuation for it. um Verse 5, they put the verse 5 here, but I, I, I see it as a flowing, a flowing thought. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Christ himself. In love, he predestined us to the adoptions of sons through Christ himself. And Paul answers why he did that. But why... Paul says, according to the kind intention of his will. Beautiful two passages. Um, I don't, you know, exegetically, just it says what it says. In love, he predestined us. Now, we know everyone's not predestined to salvation. We know everyone's not going to be adoptions of sons. We're not all children of God, in, in contrary to what people say, right. but his elect or and he did this according to the kind and sense of his will. Beautiful right. set of passages.
0: Amen. It surely is. It surely is. You know, something else to think about, too, before we move on in that sense is that God not only is the outcome of election and the reason election exists for the glory of God, and he is glorified in it. People will refute that. They will. They hate that. And sadly, we have to say that when people hate that, it's because they don't love and have not been revealed by God the Spirit, the truth of the love of God for His people. And that they find some area, they find some area in their life that's worthy of God's attention apart from His decree and His sovereignty and His glory. And I'll, and I'll tell you, brother, it's a difficult thing to, to hear people go on and on and on about who they are and how much worth they have. And and how God desires them in such a way because of their condition and their person. And it breaks my heart to hear it. Um, but, you know, election is in, involves, the very idea of election involves not just why, which is for the glory of, of God's name the, through the salvation of his people, but also who the very individuals that he chooses, his church, the bride of Christ, those whom he gives to the Son, and it also includes how. Election is how God saves. And a lot of folks don't realize that. We can't say that we don't believe election if we believe the cross. because And that's why next week's, uh, next week's podcast is so important. The cross accomplished the justice and the righteousness of God for the sake of his work of election. It is what God has done to save his people. And so the means through which God accomplishes the salvation of his people, this is also part of God's election. And it's tough. It's tough for people to swallow. And the reason we're doing this podcast is because we have heard so many people in the last few months, even last week or two, who just want to argue this from such an emphatic position, not contextually but more or less philosophically, and in, in, in some sense, it's sort of a naturalism type thing. It's almost humanistic in some ways. Uh, and it goes down to what we talked about doing in a couple of weeks about depravity and inability. We need to realize just who we are so that we can see what the Scripture teaches. But let's also remind our listeners that you, you all need to remember that God saves sovereignly and God saves supernaturally through the hearing of the Word of Christ. So as we teach these things, we pray that most importantly, for those of you who want to share these with others, I pray that you would learn to share the Scripture with them more than you would this podcast with them. Let this podcast be an edifier for the church more than it is the teacher of election uh, for the lost, if, if, if that makes sense.
2: That's good. Um, You've also mentioned some passages, and I'd like to look at this more closely. And I think the next set of passages we look at answers the question. Is the election definite, or is it theoretical or hypothetical? Meaning, did he elect on the basis of a plan? Did he elect folks on the basis of uh, their good deeds? Or was it a definite election before we were born on the basis of his sovereignty? On behalf of the elect, he provided a substitutionary It's it, You know what's interesting? Not to deviate. The, t- the phrase substitution atonement is used by Armenians. Tell me, why do you think yes. it's used by Armenians? It's a decidedly Reformed phrase. Why do the Armenians <laughs> use it?
0: Yeah, I think because they know with good – let's just use it this way. They know without a shadow of a doubt that if Christ did not pay for their sins, that they would have to pay for them. Because common sense tells you when you know you're guilty, you can't get away from the consequence of your guilt unless somebody pays define the way. So it's
2: a, un- a, a universal substitutionary atonement, I guess, in their mind,
0: right? Yeah, but they would say that if no, if the person rejects it, then it didn't work. I, I, see, it doesn't make any logical sense. So if it's not, they'll say, no, it's not universal. I've spoken with a few people this week even. No, it's not universal, but it's available for all. It's, available. It not it's, it's sufficient for all.
2: Is it not universal because he doesn't fail in his election?
0: <laughs> right. You know,
2: I mean, if he failed, I mean, everyone who dies without Christ would be demonstrative of his failing, his impotency right. in in his purpose of election. If that were true, so I think a a some passages that you brought up, um, I think that really defines the issue because not only is it it's um so. There's so much uh, grammatical clarity, but it's just—and again, we're not saying you have to know Greek to, you know, embrace the doctrines of election, but I would say on some on some areas, Greek surely enhances it. And to deny the simple language of whatever translation you have would be what tells me you have not done any grammatical analysis, any just basic analysis on the passages themselves. Um, right. John six, thirty five through forty. I like to look at those. Mm-hmm. Um why don't you take thirty five and thirty six and what is what is he actually saying here?
0: Well right in 35 and 36 see there's a lot there's a lot already happening here these Jews have come right. for the Passover um and these and, and you're talking he's talking to 20,000 plus people a lot of people don't realize this but the scripture even though it says 5,000 and i may be wrong in this but i've always seen commentaries or not commentaries but historians talk about the totality of the people that would come into this region for the Passover and that when they numbered the men, that, that that there was a possibility of not just their households, but their servants and others who lived with them, their wives or children, that there could be upwards of 20,000 people here. Um, and also the spiritual leaders. So here's Jesus talking and teaching to 20,000 plus people that he just fed miraculously through a small lunch out from, from one child. And... Then after they were done eating, they gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers. And so they follow, they wait for Jesus who vanishes supernaturally and escapes from them because they wanted to what? Make him king. They wanted to put him in charge to deliver them from the oppression of Rome. So here Jesus has come back to Capernaum by walking over the, over the Sea of Galilee and then, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, and then, v- teleporting the boat with the disciples in it three miles. He just immediately, when he stepped into the boat, it was on dry land, the scripture says. So then as he gets over there, they say, Teacher, where did you come? When did you get here? He, He rebukes them and says, Do not labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures to eternal life. And then he goes on to continue to say, I am this bread. And so in verses 35 and 36... He is saying, "I'm the bread of life." They're seeking. They ask the question, "What must we do, or what sign do you bring?" And he says, "The sign. I've, have I not already given you a sign? What must we do to be doing the work of God?" They say, in other words, "What did God? What does God require of us that we could have this eternal bread?" And they're still thinking in a physical sense of establishing a kingdom on earth and and not hungering, et cetera. And Jesus says, this is the work of God. This is what God requires of you, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And then he goes on to give this differentiation, this comparison against the bread from the from the wilderness, which some people say they were looking for, that he would produce a piece of manna to prove that he was Messiah or prove that he was the prophet. And he's like, no, 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 no. That bread they ate and died, I'm the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, that's faith shall not hunger whoever believes in me that's fate shall never thirst but I say to you that you have seen me yet you do not believe in other words everything they knew this is what's so weird about this not weird but sad everything they knew the very purpose that they were there in that in in that region was to come to the Passover feast to point to the salvation the sovereign salvation of God who passed over their sin for the just by seeing the blood of a lamb the picture there of Jesus who is the true pascha he's the true passover and they could and they knew it they knew it from childhood they've been taught it they've been taught about messiah they knew the whole reality of God's promise and God's covenant they understood election even. and now when he stood before them, just like when he stood before Jesus uh, Nicodemus in John three, he stood before them and they he says and asserts one more time, "I am the bread of life. come, believe, thirst, eat, he'll say later. But he says, "I say to you that you have seen me yet you do not believe." They knew in their cognitive mind who he probably was. They should have been able to easily see them, but they could not see him. Right. They couldn't see him. Yeah. They could not believe. Why? We know what the Scripture teaches there, especially in Isaiah 6 and later John 12 and others. But I, I'll let you take it from there. But that that's sort of the context of where we are in that passage.
2: Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the context because too many people, you know, just do not consider any context and they make everything a pretext. Um, right. Yeah, I— and, I, and I, I, you know, I use these. John six is such an incredible set of passages for uh, not only election, but there's a whole lot of doctrine, particularly the priests of the Son coming down out of heaven. But when Jesus tells them He is bread of life, I think this answers also verses uh, like fifty four. You know, where yes. whoever will will is munching right, trogon munching on my flesh, yes. drinking my blood, has eternal life. Well, he's answering what he means here in 35 and 36, and you mention a, uh, a good verse in 37, um, when he says, on the bread of life, whoever, and interestingly for us, our edification, it says, whoever keeps coming to me, ergomenos, will never, never, not even a possibility, hunger. It's a double negative, it's, it's so beautiful, and whoever is believing, Pistion, uh, Pistion, who's ever believing in me, will never, never, not even a possibility, uh, uh, thirst. Then he says, yes. "But you, as you quoted, you, verse thirty-six. But you see me. You, 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 you see me, but you still don't believe. And then from yes. thirty-seven following, he explains why they don't believe. And uh, Ar- Armenians should take note here. Jesus is yes. actually explaining why some of them do not believe. You see me, and yet you do not believe. Thirty-seven. One of my favorite verses in the context." All that the Father gives to me will come, uh, will come. Uh, Hexay, it's a, a future indicative, meaning he doesn't give everyone, right? The Father doesn't give everyone to the Son, because here, Jesus says, they absolutely, it's a promise, they absolutely will come to me. And the ones who are gaminon, who keeps coming to me, yes. I will never, never not even a possibility. We have that same construction. Never, never, not any possibility cast out. And then he explains, for I have come down to heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him is yes. sent me. Now, it's interesting here on a side note that the action of him doing his will, gr- gr- now I'm just purely from a grammatical stand, uh, stance, the action of him doing his will was before he, he came to earth. The Father right. sent him, He does his will. He submits to the Father's will. Then he comes to earth. A, a, such a clear example of the person of the Son before he came and incarnated himself. Mm. And then he says, This, in verse 39, is the will of him who sent me. Now, what Christ is doing, he's defining the Father's will. That all that he has given that has given, it's a perfect tense, so we find that it, it's a past-completed action, all that the Father has given me, again, this is the Father's will, I lose nothing, but raise it, alta, neuter, it, the group, it, the elect, mm-hmm. up at the last That's day. Right. Why this is so important is because it's the Father's will that Jesus raise up, raises up everyone that the Father gave him. There's no escape from these passages, the Father did not give everyone to Christ, because Christ promises, hey, this is the Father's will, that I lose nothing but raise it. Now, I know your trans; some translations have raised them up, but the fact of the matter is, in the Greek, it's alta, it's the neuter, it's defining the group, the group that the yeah. Father gave to the Son. I think it's airtight, and I think it's just so exegetically defined, so contextually as you... Um, uh, so what uh, so um clearly defined um shows the 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 election's defi- definitive the father gives not all but some to the son and notice the Correct. the verb the, the, the order all that the father gives me will come now we know in john's literature the act of coming hearing believing munching um yeah, drinking his blood yeah it all synonymous with faith so what comes yeah. first look at look at the order does the father give mm-hmm. or do they believe the in the Armenian yeah in the Armenian you know th- their scheme would be that you come first and then the father elects and all these things but here mm-hmm. the, the first act is the father giving his elect to Christ and Christ yes. says, I will raise him up at the last day beautiful to the passages.
0: yes it is It's also important to understand, too, the recapitulation that Jesus continues to to use. I will raise up. I will raise up. I will raise up on the last day. I will lose none. I will raise up. So all of those that are given will be raised up. This is an indicator, almost explicitly, of eternal life in Christ alone. And that's the argument that he's given. They are looking to try to find some way that they can operate in their volition to follow after the purposes and the will of God so that they can find life. That's why they're doing the feasts. They they feel secure in asking that if Jesus would just tell them the the steps, they would follow them and they would be doing the will of God. Jesus says the will of God is that he will only give me those. the, The ones that will be raised up are the ones he gives me, those who believe. And uh, April fifteenth of this year, I, I'm preaching through John's Gospel in our assembly, and uh, April fifteenth of this year, I um, I preached sermon number forty-seven, and that was on this text, uh, John six thirty-seven through forty, and I basically entitled this message, "Limited Atonement is the Gospel." And I proved that contextually. I don't prove it. The Scripture proves it contextually right here. And that's exactly what we're talking about right now. And it got got really um, frustrating because I kept getting emails and and messages from the Internet where people would say this is just absurd. And what's interesting is that half of them that I said, well, have you listened to it? They said no. The other half would just bless me out and, and not even talk about it. But half of the ones who said that they had not listened to it, I had six or seven come back and say, I listened to what you I listen to the teaching, and I can't refute what you say because the Bible teaches this. However, I don't understand how this is so. So here is another reason why pastors need to study and they need to teach contextually and they need to they need to exposit scripture rather than dealing with their what most pastors are taught to do nowadays: their preaching schedule and come up with topics. Get away from the topics. Get into the Word of God and watch God grow His church. He will grow through the reaching of the lost. He will grow His. He will. Get, he will give. He's given them to the Son. He will bring them to salvation. He will bring them to faith, and He will bring them into the maturity of the of the assembly. And uh, it's important that we continue to reiterate these things in that sense pastorally. Because that's that's how we live out our faith with the local church. We live it out that way, and um, it, it's it's disheartening. But at the same time, we trust in the Lord because this ver- these verses not only teach this, but it also gives guys like you and I who evangelize daily, and do apologetics daily. It gives us the ability to rest in the sufficient work of God the Father, the sufficient work of God the Son, and the sufficient work of God the Spirit to bring salvation. All we have to do is teach it rightly and exposit it rightly. And even then, (laughs) if we just read it, God will bring people to salvation. So it gives me a, a good night's rest to know that even though I'm burdened for the lost and I'm burdened for the maturity of the saints, that it's still all in the hand of God sovereignly.
2: That's what it comes down in the hand of God. Um, why, you know, when, when the Gentiles understood this, when the Gentiles understood that Christ was a light for them, and I love one of the passages in, in uh, Acts thirteen forty-eight, preceding that, they get the prophecy of Isaiah for, uh, 42 6 about that Christ is a light and uh, for the Gentiles, because yes. they were always under that uh, that false notion that salvation was of the Jews alone. The Jews pro- promulgated that kind of notion, but in verse forty-eight of Acts thirteen, when the Gentiles heard this, that they too were included in the election of God and salvation. Um, yes, you know, Christ was for them. You know, came to them. We read that they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now, you and I know. Only a regenerate person can rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. So something Amen. happened to them there at the preaching of the gospel. And then we read, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Yes. I think it's a excellent, excellent passage. Just reading it for me, in any translation except the New World Translation, as many as been appointed. Now I say that because the New World Translation reads something as... Um, such as uh, all that were disposed to eternal life, you know, believed. They use the word disposed. And what's really interesting is Norm Geisler. Um, he interpreted this as uh, the, the, it's a pluperfect verb here, to tagmanoy. It's a pluperfect passive participle. And the pluperfect shows a, a past completed, completed action with results to a particular time, the time of them believing. And Norm actually tried to say uh, it means dispose. Well, the only translation that I can find was the Jehovah's Witnesses' new translation that has that kind of rendering for, for the pluperfect here, to tagmanos. All that has been appointed to eternal life, believe. Look at the, the word order, appointed to eternal life, believe, you know, and uh, God's electing or choosing is not based on man's foreseeing righteousness in his efforts, or his willing. You right. know, we see that all over the place, John one thirteen and, and other places. And, of course, I wish we had lots of, you know, more time to go through Romans 9 and um, look at the divine, or the context of the divine election with Jacob and Esau and show right. how it's not, uh, it's not it can't be nations, singular pronouns, sing, singular true. terms are used. And also, the Lord says no before they were even born. So God's, he, literally God's purpose according to election withstand. That's how right. it reads in the Greek. God's purpose according to election withstand.
0: Right, that's correct. You know, and that's that's interesting. You bring that up because the the here in the South, you know, seven years ago when we came here to plant Grace Truth Church, um, there were evangelical leaders in certain circles who rejected us just out of the out of the, out of the shoot. They'd like, no, you're not of like faith and order. You don't believe this. You don't believe that. So when I in private conversation tried to press the issue of election, which I was being told the Bible doesn't teach election. And then I, I asked the question, then what do you do with the words for elect, for choose, for no. And it was my first introduction to someone who actually believed in what's known as corporate election. And corporate election would say that the elect are all those who are, you know, everybody. So God has chosen everybody. (laughs) And then we're talking about groups here. But Romans 9, like you've mentioned already, um, it talks about individuals. He says Pharaoh. He says Jacob. He says Esau. These are individuals. But these individuals also represent groups, correct? So if, if, if Romans 9 is talking about individuals, then also groups, we need to understand, just like Jesus says, who is he talking about? You all who are listening to me in John 6, you all do not believe in me. You don't. Why? Because God has not given any of you to me. The Father's not given you to me. But if he has... You would you would be eating of me. You would be believing on me. You would be seeing me, looking at me. Those are the words that you would be drinking of me. You would believe. So when we think about, you know, but at the same time, there is a group who are elect, but God doesn't save people in that sense of uh, in groups. God does not have a different conditioned election for other people that he does for different folks. There is not a different covenant of salvation for Jews or for, you know, ethnic Israel as there are for the Gentiles. It doesn't teach that. As a matter of fact, the very fact that, I know I said fact too much there, but the very fact that Abram, who was a Chaldean, who worshiped the moon on a ziggurat, was chosen to be God's instrument through which he would bring a, an elect people to the surface of the earth visibly, <laughs> and then through those elect people also to graft others in that would be in the bloodline of Jesus Christ Messiah, shows you that election is not a New Testament concept. It is it is the point from the very beginning that where Jesus is is alluded to or foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3 where God speaks and says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so this is not new. Election is how God saves. And and something that's very strange too is, you know, we, we ought to we ought to talk we get a lot of good ideas when we're we're actually recording these things because it brings thoughts to our minds. But you know, our listeners, we do want you to go to theologyanswers.com and ask questions. And we do have a question we're going to be answering sometime in the next few weeks, and we'll let that person know. But we do want you to ask questions. Um, but these things come to mind and when we when we see uh all the all the views that that we have around the world and all in in Christendom and we see people coming to the table with all these different points of view uh there are there are many there are many who have and i've almost forgotten what i was going to say there but when the, when they're dealing with the elect oh i know what it was when another view that somebody has given me is that they believe that Jesus alone is the elect have you ever heard of that
2: um I, I've heard that the Jews alone are the elect, from Zionist yeah. kind of thing, like John Hagee. Um, um, well, yeah, I, I mean, of course, there's pastors that says he's my my elected one, my chosen one. Right. But to say he right. alone, I don't know how you maintain such an absurd such an absurd assertion based on all the text that, that plurals are used. to text, you know, he elected right. you, and so on and so forth.
0: That particular I've had that that one I've had one person give me that in the sense that Jesus is the elect of God so that those who believe in Jesus now are the elect by being grafted in. And and you know, you you see all that type of uh, uh play on words and, and things of this nature. It's, it's just you know, a, my, it's a sad reality.
2: You know my response to those kind of things instead of you know, batting my head banging my head on the wall I just, simply to say, but really, you'll prove it. You know, show me the text. Prove it. Prove your assertion. Prove, prove, your, philo- prove your philosophy by the biblical text. And unfortunately, yeah. you know, it, 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 these kind of, the oppositions to a lot of these things aren't proven by the text. It's proven by philosophy, and a lot of times even Calvinists get just dragged in. that philosophical argument. They get dragged in with an argument of philosophy, and we need to stay true to the biblical text. We need to stay true to what God has provided, um, and, and really, by the exegetical analysis of all these passages, you know, what are, right. ask the question, what does Scripture actually say on these things?
0: Right. That's right. That's right. And it's, it's I don't know, it, it's so funny because Christianity is culturally accepted in most places in the United States. And yet it's hard to find Orthodox, orthodox Christianity. It's hard to find exegetes and expositors. It's hard to find church members who actually are growing in their understanding of the Scripture. And I don't know. There's just so many things that go through my mind that I I get scatterbrained at times when I try to think about what to address next, what to talk about next. And I think that that's a, an indicator that what we need to do most of all is to teach these doctrines, is to teach these theological positions. And it's it's really popular in today's circle to always teach the not gospel and make that our mantra. And what I mean by that is it'd be really, you know, we could get a lot of listeners who would sit here and talk if we had a whole hour show on the errors of the doctrine of election. and. You know we've talked about some of them, but more importantly, we've wanted to talk about the truth of the doctrine of election, because what's going to change things is to teach what's found in Scripture, not just discuss all the weird and 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 unbiblical platforms that all these people have. Um, but when it comes to election, I think it's I think it's important for us to understand that that some of the objections that we have, I mentioned fatalism a, a few you know, a little while ago, and why do we preach and why do we evangelize? And here's my quick answer on that, is that we do so because the Bible commands us to do so, and that God has chosen in the counsel of His own will, in His own wisdom, He has chosen to bring His people, His elect people to salvation through the natural means of the hearing of the Word of Christ, and then through the natural hearing god supernaturally as he wishes as the wind blows where it wishes he births again his people so that he is glorified as the author and the finisher of our faith and Mm -hmm. sovereignly we don't get to choose what is and is not sovereign and so we uh we don't get to question sovereignty
2: yeah i bet that that was paul's actual answer the common objection by the Armenians today: Well, if God is the one that hardens the heart, if God is the one that doesn't show compassion at all, then how can He find fault uh, for those who right. resist His will? Was that not the question that Paul posed to the in, to the opposers? You know, yes. one of you may say this. Well, the Armenians say this all the time. Well, how can God hold us accountable for or anyone accountable if He's the one that grants life and He's the one that precludes life? I love Paul's answer. On the contrary, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Or literally, literally, old man, who are you answering back to God? And then he says, as I mentioned before, the thing, uh, he calls it the plasma, singular noun. Singular noun. These are singular uh, terms that are used in Romans 9. The thing molded, or the plasma, will not say to the, literally in Greek, the plasma maker, why did you make me like this? Right. so they're not uh, right. they have no right you know right mm. I, think I think one of our subsequent shows much. should be, should should be on Romans 9 because there's so much there particularly 21 22 and 23 that, uh, a lot of yeah. I asked my class because we were going through Romans 9 before I started I, I just asked a the question but there's like 30 people in the, the, the school that I teach at how many people have, have really explored from a from a detailed, you know expository standpoint romans chapter 9 nobody has right nobody you know and even unfortunately even my you know there, there's a whole lot of calvinists who are have a defect in their presentation in romans 9 because they just want to refute they don't want to give a positive presentation they just want to refute
0: yes mm. lord have mercy Well, brother, that's about all of our time right here. This goes by so fast. We could do a couple hours, I think, in each one, and we might decide to do that uh, in in the future. But we thank you all for listening to us. Please go to TheologyAnswers.com and ask your questions and let us know you're listening and let us know if there's some things that you'd like to hear we're praying that the Lord as the months move on and we get our listeners up we're praying that we'll be able to have at least once a month a live call in in the evenings Uh, once a month. So we'd love to, we'd love to work toward that end, but the Lord's work and the Lord's will be done. That's our hope. But until then, we're glad that you have um, listened today. And also there are other podcasts at christianpodcastcommunity.com. We're a part of that community and we invite you to go and listen to other good apologetic and theologically and biblically based podcasting. And maybe you have a podcast. Maybe you thought about putting your podcast in a larger circle, let us know. Go there and give it support, and we look forward to talking with you very, very soon. Lord bless. God bless. We thank you for listening to this podcast today, and we appreciate your support. Please share this with someone who you think it may bless. We pray that you would be in contact with us by going to TheologyAnswers.com. Learn more about the podcast community at ChristianPodcastCommunity.com.